Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason for screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'm Anne and with co-host Mitch today, um, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. We'd like to pay respects to our el- uh, to elders past and present and to acknowledge that sovereignty over this land was never ceded. Each week on the Living Free Show, we so- showcase one of the many programs that assist in recovery from drug, alcohol, gambling, food and other addictions. Our guests share their recovery stories and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Today the focus is on Al-Anon family groups. Al-Anon is a fellowship of relatives and friends of alcoholics who share their experience, strength and hope in order to solve their common problems. Al-Anon believes that alcoholism is a family illness and that changed attitudes can aid recovery. This week I'm joined by Dan, a member of Al-Anon and a former member of Alateen. So um, we're going to have a bit of an Alateen perspective today. Um, uh, Dan uh, thinks it's important that we get that message out, that there is a fellowship there for young people um, who are uh, whose life's affected by someone's drinking. So welcome, Dan. Thanks for having me. Um, and welcome, Mitch. Hello. Good to be here. Uh, let's start, Dan, by uh, just tell us about your tell us about your life, your early life, where you were growing up. Well, uh, I grew up in Melbourne. Uh, I grew up in Ivanhoe. Uh, my parents split when I was maybe four years old, and uh, I, I really had no consciousness of alcohol in my life. Uh, I really up until the point when I was a, a teenager. But I came from a yeah a somewhat uh, broken home, I would say. Uh, my parents did the the very best that they they could with what they had, but um, nevertheless, you know, it was uh, it was it was a, a a in in many ways a rich childhood, but one that was blighted by the the presence of alcohol within the home. So that's why I'm here today, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, so how did that manifest? Well, <clears throat> I mean, it was somewhat of a confusing thing because when you're a kid, you really don't have any understanding of alcohol at all. Mm. So. What, what would take place is uh, everyone would be more or less normal. The parents would be normal uh, during the day. But then what would happen is, uh, you know, at nighttime, you would wake up to these uh, horrific fights taking place. And what had taken place is that, uh, you know, there had been a substitution between, uh, in my case, um, one of my parents, who, who was a, a loving, nurturing parent during the day. But then uh, when they would drink, uh, would, would sort of transform. And mm. so... When, when you're young, you haven't the capacity to make sense of what's going on here. All you know is that there's a radical unpredictability mm-hmm. to, to the, the way your, your family life uh, 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 proceeds. So, yeah, that, that has a, a kind of impact that um, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure we'll talk about. And uh, that use of the word transform, that's interesting. So what did it kind of look like when their personality would shift at night? Well, uh, it's hard to describe. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to describe if you haven't seen it. And uh, what, what really takes place when you're drinking alcohol, of course, is that there's uh, the inhibition of all your sort of more benevolent uh, ways mm-hmm. of thinking and acting. And if you've got a whole bunch of, of trauma and brokenness in, in your life, as one of my parents did, a lot of that can come out and manifest itself in, in various different ways. So, but in general, um, you know, if... if if a parent is prone to, to anger or violence, that might come out. If they're prone to hysteria, that might come out as well. It sort of depends on the individual person. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and reflecting on, I guess, that divorce, was that something that troubled you when you were going to school and high school and that kind of thing? Or how did you come to terms with that? It's hard to say. I mean, when you're a kid, you you really don't sit around thinking about these sorts of things too much. Uh, so I, in many ways, I had a very, very strong relationship with both my parents, even though they were split up. So I'm extremely fortunate to have that. But um, at the same time, you know, as you get into your teenage years, you you might feel that there's a sort of lack of stability or a lack of uh, security uh, or predictability around your life. And that might come out, in my case, with, with a lot of anger or a lot of estrangement, frustration. Uh, so, yeah. And you said when you were younger, uh, you didn't really have a perception of alcohol per mm. se until you got into your teenage years. Mm. What did that start to look like when you did understand or start to understand the uh, the um, impact of alcohol in your family? Well, um, I really only began to understand that alcohol was the problem when uh, the, the alcoholic parents got sober. And that parent would, would go to meetings, would go to AA. I could see the, the transformation in that, in that parent's life. And so it was really through coming to see the, 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 the beauty of this new person that was going through recovery that I, I came to understand that a lot of the, the, the muck and the brokenness of the past was due to the substance. Um, so, yeah. Um, can I take you back then to your – were you the only child? Ah uh, yes. Yep. Yeah. So, can you tell me how you, what your reaction was, either in behaviour or in thinking or feeling, um, with the the uh, Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde yeah, situation? Yeah, yeah, no, I know what you mean. So, what you're alluding to there is, yeah, exactly the the fact that you know your your parent, or depending on on what the case is, it could be any other family member, but in my case, it was a parent. Uh, seeming to manifest two different sorts of of personalities, and I suppose my response was uh, to to generalise to the view that the world is, is radically unpredictable and that people mm-hmm. can be one way and then turn out to be another way. Mm-hmm. And so naturally, if you're in that sort of situation, how are you going to trust people? How are you going to uh, form a, a stable relationship with the better aspects of people's natures around you? And, but also at the same time, bear in mind that people are complicated and that they might have uh, other aspects to their personality that you don't like. It's very difficult to have an integrated point of view mm. on someone is what I'm trying to say. You, you tend to see people as all good or all bad because it's, it's hard to trust people when they're unpredictable. I remember um, uh, an auntie during a party at, at our house mm. came and sat on my bed and were just ch- chatting to me about something and she, I could, she'd had a drink. Mm. But I, I would have been about 10 and I had no idea the difference between having had a drink and being blotto. Completely drunk, mm-hmm. um, so she's talking, and I'm just looking at her with absolutely no trust whatsoever. Like mm-hmm. I, I was given a nothing, you know. It's like because yeah. I don't trust any adult at all who's who'd, be, who'd been drinking, and it took me a long time to sort through that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I feel like trust is built through uh, becoming adjusted to consistent personalities mm-hmm. or assistant, uh, consistent personality type. Mm-hmm. So when you're faced with something that's totally unfamiliar, it's like, how can you? Mm. Okay, so um, did you do anything like, did you actually get involved with, did you get up and try and sort the problem out that you were well, listening to? Well, you, you've got to remember that I'm, I'm a child here, yeah. I'm, I'm six or seven years old. I, yeah. I always uh, had a, an extremely, um, I was very, very apt to defend this parent, uh, sometimes physically. So I remember, well, I, I don't remember this actually, I've been told that uh, we were at a party one time, me and his parents, and uh, I'm, I'm saying this parent rather than my mother or my father because mm. I'm trying to preserve Are they an, both an still anonymity. together at this point? No, 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 no they're, right. not, they're not. <clears throat> but I was at this party, and uh, I'm three years old or something like that, and my parent is uh, hit in the head by a golf ball, which someone was whacking around for some reason at a party. And apparently, as a three-year-old, I marched off there screaming at this person, mm. ready to, to attack them mm-hmm. uh, because, yeah, again, it, there was this kind of chivalric desire to defend mm-hmm. this, this parent. Um, mm. So, yeah, I mean, my reaction typically was to try and seize control and to defend and protect. And that is a completely uh, – that that's, goes to the heart of um, what it is to be the child of an alcoholic mm-hmm. because yeah. that's a completely natural reaction, but yeah. it's something that most children don't have to do. Mm-hmm. And did your parents put you in the middle at any point or would tell you something and tell you not to tell the other parents? No, or? no, no. Very, very fortunately, my parents were in their separation as, as good as honestly you could – ever hope two parents to be they always put me at the at the center of their concern and that in a way that kind of love for me helped preserve uh their their kind of relationship not not as a couple but as as co-parents um throughout that time so again i'm extremely grateful Mm. that that could take place Mm -hmm. yeah so it's interesting isn't it that somebody can be um 
damaged and mm. in one way, but enlightened in another way. And, yeah. and that's another thing, thinking about growing up in an alcoholic situation. It's not all bad mm-hmm. because these people are not bad people. Yes, they, yes. They've just got a problem. Exactly. Something else I wanted to touch on just on what we were talking about before as well is, you know, when you're one person during the day and another person at night when you drink, I feel like that's almost become normalized as a part of drinking, you know, oh, you know, that's Stacey, she's not like me, she's the crazy drunk, and people almost palm it off in terms of having to take accountability mm-hmm. for their actions when they're drunk through mm-hmm. virtue of adopting a new personality. Yeah. And I feel like, yeah, that's just so normalized, and people joke about it, but it really can turn into something yeah. negative and consuming like yeah. that as well. Yeah, so. yeah. Can we take you to your uh, teenage years now? So you talked before about a sense of estrangement and anger, I think mm. you mentioned. Mm-hmm. How was that for you? Well, um, it, it, it was, as it sounds, <laughs> estrangement <laughs> and anger. Uh, and and uh, I mean, to some extent, that's, that's part of the, the teenage experience, no yeah. doubt. But um, <clears throat> at the same time, uh, I, I think that when you go through uh, a childhood such as mine, you've got a lot of problems to sort out by the time you get to your teenage years. And life doesn't stop in order for you to sit there and, and sort things out. Mm-hmm. The changes keep on coming, the responsibilities keep on building, and uh, you have to make sense of those as best you can on your own, really. That's the, that's the challenge. And what was school like for you? Well, it was, uh, it was, it was good in many ways, uh, but it was also challenging in that I have a, a disability, I'm vision impaired. So you know, there was this added challenge of the fact that I was losing my vision over the time that I was a child and uh, a teenager. And so I had to manage that at the same time as uh, sort of managing what was going on at home. And so I suppose my response was to really uh, not engage with school, to sort of break away with it. I used to wag. Fortunately, I um, you know, I had music and, mm. and heavy metal, which I <laughs> discovered at a certain point in time, which kind of uh, protected me and gave me a, a kind of identity for a period of time. So, Does it mean you were in the school band, so that was the reason to get into school, or, or do you just mean it was something to, to engage you, your soul? Well, uh, I was, in the end, in just about every single musical project the school, <laughs> school offered. Um, but, yeah, I was also in other bands, heavy metal bands. But the, the point is, you know, I, I just loved the music that I played. I loved right. the music that I was listening to. It gave me a sense of purpose. It's something that I, I genuinely had a connection with. So, yeah. you know, there was solace in that. Why do you think you were drawn to metal? What was it initially, if you can try and make sense of that? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very difficult to say because uh, when I first heard metal, it just connected with me uh, in a way that, uh, that made sense. And I, I can't really be any more articulate than that because it's somewhat ineffable when, when music really connects for you. But for me, what it was was a, a genuine and raw expression of uh, a range of different sort of human emotions, including anger and frustration and all those sorts of things. But what I saw in metal was both a, a great love of the the technique behind music a love for the craft of music but at the same time a, a sort of willingness to be able to be be uh, angry or or write a metal ballad <laughs> uh, and, and display a range of different sorts of emotions with a certain sort of musical integrity which i really spoke to me right so not only is it okay to be angry it's kind of like empowering yeah, yeah. Or I, I suppose at the end of the day, um, it's not necessarily about the emotion you're expressing. It's the fact that you're trying to express yourself with uh, a certain sort of authenticity and you're trying to make the music uh, about something that that is real, real in your character, real in your life, real in your emotions. And when you can do that, it takes a certain amount of courage to do that. But when you can do that and when you connect with someone, it builds a real kind of relationship. Uh, that's great to hear you talk about that authenticity mm-hmm. because I think one of the things that I came out of the alcoholic situation that I grew up in with was a sense of not being able to express myself authentically, different Mm. era, Um, and also it was more shameful. So Mm. there was a whole part of me that was not expressed um, because I was hiding the fact that my my household was so dysfunctional. Mm. Um, So that's uh, very encouraging to hear that, that 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 happened. Um, Can you take us, before we're going to a break in a minute, can you take us to the point where you decided to go to an Alateen meeting? Uh, yes. Um, my mother convinced me somehow, I still don't remember how, but uh, to go to a meeting at some point. And uh, I think the only reason I went is because that day I bought my first uh, Megadeth album, which was a <laughs> classic metal band. <laughs> you heard that. And uh, I think I went with the intention of like putting my, my e- like iPod headphones uh, in my ears and covering my uh, ears with my hair. The audience can't see, but I've got long hair. And sort of sitting there as I, I did in class and, and sort of wagging by just listening to music and not paying attention. So I thought, this is going to be fine. You know, I can sort of uh, upset myself. But um, yeah, I got there and 
Uh, I was told that I can't listen to my iPod, which was somewhat mm. disappointing. Uh, and yeah, but, but I, I had the experience of my first ever Alateen meeting. And again, just to pick up on that theme of authenticity, uh, that's that's one of the first things I experienced in, in the rooms. So, mm-hmm. yeah. We'll come back to that after the break. Yeah. Um, we've got some music that Dan's brought in. Now, Dan told me before the show that he, his great love is classical music and his other love is uh, death metal and f- forms of metal. And he's now selected... Believe it or not, Steely Dan. So can you explain? Tell us why. Uh, well, I, I love Steely Dan. I really, really love Steely Dan. So it's, it's not, it's not um, you know, it's, it's not as if I'm choosing music that I'm not a fan of. Yes, but yes, at the yes. same time, you know, I was thinking about which uh, Beethoven uh, piano sonata to select. <laughs> and I sort of thought, oh, perhaps there's music that might be of a greater appeal to a wider audience. Good so, on you. Who doesn't like Steely Dan? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, this is Reeling in the Years by Steely Dan.
you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 500. That's 1300 500. Wellways supports 3CR. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. This is a Living Free Show on 3CR 855 kilohertz on your AM radio dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you would like to listen to one of our many podcasts, then you can find us on your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free and check out our website. You can also contact us via phone, email or Twitter or the new community radio app. I'm talking today with Dan, uh, who attended Alatine is now a member of Al-Anon, um, and he's just going to talk to us a little bit more now about what Alatine was like. So uh, welcome back, Dan. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Okay, so what convinced, you said you went to your first meeting at your mum's urging. Uh, why did you give in to the urging? Why, what made sense to you? Well, going? I, I really can't for the life of me remember why I actually went to the first meeting, to be honest. I, I don't know what sort of schemes she employed to, <laughs> to get me there. But, uh, yeah, I, I did go. I did go. And um, I suppose, really, the, the question is, what kept me coming back? Yeah, that's and it. And the, the experience that I had there was uh, ultimately of being able to express oneself uh, about the experience of growing up around alcoholism and to not fear any kind of judgment or reprisal on the part of other people. Uh, and at the same time, I, what happens when you can do that? is first, first and foremost, you, you feel this unburdening of mm. oneself. You feel, I felt uh, that the, the, the pain that I had been uh, living with for such a long time uh, wasn't necessarily something I had to carry, and it wasn't something that would be alien to other people. So when I met the other our teens, you know, uh, people my age, uh, who I later became friends with, um, I, I realized that, you know, you can have a friendship grounded in that kind of honesty where you can reveal that aspect of your life to someone and that that can be productive of a, a friendship and a connection with someone. So I think first and foremost, it was that experience and then the kinds of relationships and the, the wisdom um, that I was able to imbibe through, through our team. So those kinds of relationships that you formed in Alateen, you didn't have anything like that during school or how did you go reaching out to people about those kinds of topics during school? Yeah, look, I, I again, I was very, very lucky to have uh, some solid friendships in school. Uh, but the thing was, uh, because my mates didn't have any real experience of alcoholism, it wasn't something that they could really relate to. And, uh, you know, at times I'd have a, a mate over to, to stay the night and uh, my my alcoholic parent would uh, start fighting with uh, her then husband, which which was not my father, but uh, it was uh, the, the person she had uh, remarried with. But, uh, you know, you're in this situation where you've got a maid over. They, they've never really been around something like this. They're, they come from a pretty secure home. And you're sort of trying to explain to them, like, oh, this is kind of normal. Like, this will happen from time to time. It's... You know, it's fine. It's not gonna. It's not gonna result in violence or murder. Contrary to chill, you know, our, yeah, chill basically. So, yeah, but that was always very difficult because it was, you know, quite embarrassing, uh, really. But yeah, then then you start to make. If you go to Alateen, if you're lucky enough to go to Alateen, as I was, you start to make friends um, for whom that kind of experience was was not so alien. So, yeah. And uh, reaching out online, or did you Google things like that to? No, no, I was, I was not very online then, and I'm still not now. So, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. 
So it was all face to face. It's also quite a while back, really. When you yeah. think that, so this is you were about fifteen, right? When when I when I went to Alatine, I was about fifteen or sixteen. And yeah. I'm twenty eight now. So yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 What's that? So like 13, 13 years ago, I guess. Yeah. Yep. It wasn't. Mm. There were some message boards around, you know, your right. Reddit mm. and stuff mm. like that. But yeah. definitely the conversation around speaking up and that kind of thing was nowhere near as prevalent, Not, prevalent right. as it is now. No. Um, all right. So you said you you imbibed a bit of wisdom there from these other kids. Yes, yes. Well, and the program as well. Yeah. You know, it all comes through the program. Yeah, and through yes. the kids though too. Yes, through yeah, the, they, yeah. They reflect that back to you in yeah. their own ways. Yes. So what did, you, what did you learn? Can you think of anything in particular you learned at the time that you that kind of you went, whoa, that is going to be very useful? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I think that the, the thing that really attracted me was uh, the slogans initially. So the, the slogans are just these short sayings uh, which contain little nuggets of wisdom, you know, like live and let live or think, think, think or... Uh, how important is it? Or let go and let God. And uh, those slogans really, really helped me. So, you know, how important is it, for instance? You know, I, I think that to myself in, in some form pretty much every day <laughs> these mm-hmm. days, you know. Mm. And uh, do you think you were drawn to those kinds of things through virtue of being a philosophy student? or? Well, um, my experience in Alateen uh, preceded my, my interest in philosophy. And I would say that it, it's more the other way around. I had a kind of philosophical disposition in that I love to think, I love to... Uh, muse over the the deep questions of life. But when I started going to our team meetings, I had a bit of a sort of platform (laughs) from which to speak uh, at every meeting. And um, I I quickly found that I enjoyed speaking. Uh, And (laughs) so that that sort of led to my my interest in some ways in in philosophy, because philosophy is an area in which really the the job is to, to, in many situations, to sit around and to to speak with other people about uh, important uh, ideas difficult ideas and so my first experience of that really in many ways was was Alateen. I'm going to jump right ahead up to your adult life now mm. uh, you say you use how important is it every day mm. is that because you've got a pr- propensity to think things are more important than they are often is that a problem that you face every yeah day? yeah definitely I mean I think um, having a, a lack of proportionality is probably part of the human condition in some mm. ways mm. Uh, because we don't we don't ultimately think of things in terms of perspective we don't tend to think of things in terms of what what does what's this going to matter to me on my my deathbed we get very easily caught up with uh the the small things that take place in our day-to-day lives uh, mm. and so yeah the 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 concept of how important is it that's you know that's a piece of wisdom that you'll find in uh in Alanon and Alateen but it really goes back to to the earliest uh, f- works of philosophy you'll find that in stoic mm. philosophy you'll mm-hmm. find that in christianity you'll find that mm. all all around the place in buddhism so mm. yes so really it's it it uh is is a kind of a, a way of healing the the lack of proportionality we have as humans in in our the way we frame our days and our mm. problems mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, we're going to go a bit more philosophical than normal. Mm. What is it about humans, the human condition, mm. that makes us blow things out of proportion? Is it? To, will you tell me what you think? Well, I think it's because we we don't have uh, our eyes on the the true, the good, and the beautiful, the most abstract yes. uh, uh, principles that, that that govern the world and govern our lives and govern our thoughts. And so, really, uh, th- those terms there—they're really just synonyms for the concept of God within a, a you know mm-hmm. a sort of more traditional classical framework. Mm-hmm. But um, to bring this back down to earth, uh, really the. The main thing is that we get caught up in our day-to-day lives. We tend to think that the things that are going to satisfy us, you know, if we just get that job or that car or that girlfriend, if we impress this group of people, that that's the moment we'll be ultimately satisfied. Mm. But it's never the case, is it? You get the job, you get the experience, you get this and you get that, and you're still left with this hunger. And the problem is that that hunger is, is desiring something that's that's infinite. It's infinitely greater than anything we could have here on this on this earth. So uh, essentially, that's that's the problem of philosophy in a nutshell. Aristotle says that philosophy begins in wonder, and that's the same that's the same urge to understand, to understand, to understand. So it's our inability to come to terms with that aspect of our nature that leads us into clinging on to these problems in our day to day lives. Just got two two questions about that. If I can yeah. jump in, so yeah. first of all, your relationship with religion and how mm-hmm. you kind of formed that growing mm-hmm. up, and mm-hmm. also how did your relationship with philosophy affect your relationship with religion, and the yeah. way you consider those kinds of theories and teachings? Yeah, well, I was uh, I was an atheist for many years. Uh, I really became a kind of anti-theist uh, in my teenage years. I was very very against any kind of religion, but um, fortunately, I in my early university days spent probably more time reading fiction, classic fiction, than I did studying philosophy. Even though I, I worked very hard at my degree, and so I encountered the great works of the West. Uh, 
Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, Tolstoy's War and Peace, George Eliot's Middlemarch, all these Shakespeare, all these great works that really gave me a more informed understanding of the human condition. And, and part of that understanding uh, speaks to this, as I was saying before, this desire that we have for the infinite in some form that we constantly try and fill with, with other sorts of things. It might be, uh, yeah, you know, sensual goods. It might be political programs. It could be anything else. So I, I began to realize that there was a lack in many of the secular philosophies that I uh, was, was, was giving my allegiance to at that point in time. And then I started to study the great uh, cosmological arguments for God's existence, how, how a finite contingent world could have come into being, how uh, a purely physical world could have brought itself into being from nothing. And eventually I came rather <laughs> uh, over, over a long period of time and with lots of intellectual resistance to concede that uh, ultimately something like uh, the monotheistic God given us in the Abrahamic religions is it makes far more sense at an intellectual level. But that, that really was an intellectual affair. Uh, then began a, a deeper sort of emotional uh, searching to see if actually this was something I could embrace and live in any significant way whatsoever. And that was much more difficult over mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Um, we might put on another Steely Dan tune in a yeah. minute, and, well, less than a minute, and then we're going to come back. Um, we're going to talk about the hunger for the infinite and how you... Uh, how that plays out in your daily life. And here's the philosopher Steely Dan with Do It Again.
Where does the profit your power company makes end up? If you join CoPower, you get to decide where 100% of our revenue goes. So while we work to dismantle the whole broken energy market, our members are building the world they want to live in by supporting strike funds, renewables projects, anti-poverty initiatives, and much more. So change your power company and then start changing everything else. That's what CoPower is all about. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. 3CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. This is a Living Free show on 3CR Digital Radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And we're talking with Dan about recovery from the effects of being close to someone with a problem of alcoholism. Dan, you you used a phrase, or at least I made a phrase out of some things you said, and that phrase was hunger for the infinite to Mm. describe the feeling of pursuing what you desire and then finding that you're still left with the hunger. Yes. Talk about that a little bit more, how that manifests in your adult life. Well, um, well, I mean, we're very deep in the philosophical weeds now, aren't we? <laughs> aren't we? But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a yearning uh, for something that is greater than any, any finite or incomplete good that we can find in this world. So, again, I think the best way to understand this is just to observe one's own experience, to see the ebbs and flows of desire for, for a new job or for this particular status in society or uh, this particular musical achievement or academic achievement or something like that. Uh, what tends to happen is we get these achievements, we, we, and when we do, we sometimes don't, but when we do, we, we have a brief moment where we, we stand at the top of the mountain and then we, we wonder what it's all about. And uh, th- there's an interesting phenomenon that can take place where the, the, at the moment of consummation, at the moment where you get something, at the moment where you feel happiest and you think, great, I finally got that job or I got the top grade on this particular assignment, uh, that experience can be tinged with a kind of a sadness or a kind of, but isn't there something more? Isn't there something more to this? And so, again, I think to observe that there is a, a hunger for the infinite, to observe that the finite goods of this world don't ultimately satisfy us is really just a, it's good anthropology. It's just a good look at how we tend to work psychologically as humans, uh, apart from anything else that it is, as a metaphysical speculation. I suppose it's all, like you kind of said, it's all about your own perspective. You know, some people, one man's trash is another man's treasure, for instance, and some people are completely content in their own existence and getting that promotion or not getting the promotion. But yeah, I guess the longing for more is what kind of eats you up. Well, that's the thing. It's, it's that no matter what it is that you're actually pursuing, if, it, if it's a part of this world, it, it tends not to be enough. It will not be enough is, is, is what I believe. So, and I think you can observe this in the artistic arena. I mean, I, I love great music. I love great works of art. I love great literature. And when you're reading a you know, great novel by Tolstoy or, or Proust or something like that, you can, you can be swept up into this, this seemingly infinite sphere of beauty. But again, at the same time, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't last. You can't fully join yourself with that moment. You can't fully uh, just simply uh, fade into the Beethoven symphony. I hope you understand what I mean here. When you're viewing a, a beautiful, idyllic sunset, there's, there's some sense in which you just want to merge with it. It's no, calling you, you to you. You can't own way. it. No, but you yeah. can't. You can't. It's temporal and, and it fades. So that's, that's the hunger for the infinite coming out. Now, I've got that very, very strongly, and mm. I, I don't know whether it's to do with um, – personality or alcoholism so i'm going to go to you mitch i'm going to say is that something you have this yearning longing all the time yeah yeah i totally was resonating with what you were saying as well um i think for me it's always okay this is something that i am aware of in terms of being taken away to another place when i'm connecting with beautiful art um but also in the last few years the more i kind of learn about how art is made or the behind the scenes um part of things which i'm very interested in the more I look at it from like an analytical and a critical point of view, and I guess I've lost kind of the magic of watching something not critically and kind of just going along for the ride and letting it take you away. So that's something I almost have to tap into my childlike yes. sense of curiosity. 
um, mm. to really enjoy things nowadays. Mm. So, Dan, I'm going to get you, because people have probably tuned in to hear about alcoholism. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so can we take that uh, idea, that mm. hunger for the infinite, can you connect mm. that up mm. with uh, the 12 steps and yeah. or the experience of alcoholism? Yes, yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, it's, it's really interesting to connect these two ideas together because uh, in the, the 12 step programs, what do you have? You have the idea that our powerlessness to control a given substance or alcohol, or it might be the consumption of alcohol in another person, our powerlessness is something that we need to confront. So what do you do when you discover that actually you're powerless over people, places and things? Well, the first place that you can't turn to is yourself because we've discovered that you, you have no capacity. I have no capacity to influence this person in my life. I have no capacity to go back in time and change what I experienced as a child. Right. But then what do the 12-step programs say? Well, they say that you have to come to believe in and then come to accept the help of what? A higher power, something higher than yourself. Now, what does that mean? It's going to mean something inevitably different for different people. But at the end of the day, what it's trying to direct you to is the fact that your powerlessness means that you need to accept help from something else. And so for some people, that higher power, quote-unquote, will be the wisdom that they find in the rooms, the, the uh, sense of communion that they have with other people being able to share their story and uh, experience that, that sense of acceptance from other people. Then, of course, it also, for many people, uh, should involve some conception of, of being able to hand, hand one's problems over to something higher. And I would think here in terms of uh, you know, a, a literal classical god of some sort, I think philosophically that, in, in my view, is the most respectable way of understanding reality. But uh, more than that, I think that, you know, th at least for me, that's the way that I've engaged with the programs, that you, you accept your own powerlessness and it forces you to recognize that there is there's something higher than yourself that must be able to res rescue you, essentially. Mm -hmm. And what was it like realizing that you were powerless over your parents' alcoholism? Uh, well, uh, yeah, distinctly unpleasant, <laughs> uh, I suppose. Sure. And uh, I mean, it's it's kind of um, it's the sort of thing where you you don't we don't behave rationally. We don't have one experience where we we go, well, I, I didn't seem to have much control over this situation, so I'm going to uh, accept my powerlessness and and try and uh, accept into my life some sort of higher power. No, we don't do that. We we continue. We persist in in our in our ways of of acting we can we persist in trying to control other people's lives or control alcohol or, or the substance in in our own lives uh because it's you know, that's the way we work we keep on making the same mistake over and over again so for many people myself included um i, I found that uh it, it really took getting to a kind of lowest ebb or a dark night of the soul uh to come to accept my own uh, powerlessness over people places and things alcohol and, and other other issues like that and the dark night of the soul, that's such an interesting phrase you've used there. So what did that look like for you? Well, um, for me, uh, what it was, was I was not living uh, as, I, uh, as the person that I was created to be. I was not living a uh, happy, intellectually fulfilled life. I was living a resentful, anger-filled life uh, where I was uh, hurting the people around me, where I was getting involved in arguments and, and problems that I had no business to be a part of. And... Uh, in that sort of situation, you, you just one knows in their heart they're not. I, I was not living as I was supposed to live, so it, it took it took living like that for long enough to come to realize that there's got to be something uh, better for me to be doing. So, um, oh, I just had an idea there, but I've forgotten it. Um, so, there's this idea that we're powerless, and yet we've got some some things that we can um, control, or well don't like even like using that word but mm. we're powerless but we have choices we can yes. choose uh certain things so you've just described how even given your power existential powerlessness mm -hmm. you're um capable of making certain choices against in this case emotions that you talked to or behaviors yeah how, how hard is that and what sort of help do the 12 steps give you with that well look i tend to think about the, I tend to think about a lot of these issues in terms of the serenity prayer, which is God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, the wisdom to know the difference. And so in that prayer, what do you have? You have this sort of formula for regaining a certain aspect of your own freedom. And so what you mentioned there is, is emotional control. And so what I think about when we're thinking about emotional control is we're thinking about the ability to accept things that we cannot have an influence over. And so, again, this is something that we've known since the Hellenistic period, since the Stoics, since the ancient Greeks as well, is that there's going to be all sorts of things that we don't have control over. People, places and things, right? So what happens when you're under the illusion that you're able to control those sorts of things? Well, what happens is that you get emotionally tied up with what people, places and things are doing. And so, in essence, what's happening is they're having an emotional influence on you 
and your actions are not having an influence on them, at least not in any positive respect. So what happens then when you choose to accept that, okay, I'm not powerless over so many things in my life. What happens? You gain back the emotional control to respond in a rational way, to respond to those things uh, in a way that is not governed by their influence over you. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, going forward, what do you kind of hope to change, if anything, about yourself and, I guess, day-to-day, your daily practices and your relationship with your parents? Yeah. Well, um, I suppose what I hope to do is, in effect, uh, practice the program <laughs> better so that I can be uh, you know, a, better, a better son, so that I can be a better friend to my friends, so that um, I, I can be one day a better spouse, a better, a better father. Uh, is that the goal ultimately? Yeah, yeah, that's one of the goals. That's one of the goals, certainly. But um, I think I think here what you got to think about in the case of alcoholism, particularly in a situation like mine, where you're an adult, um, you're an adult child of an alcoholic, so you grew up around alcoholism. There's all sorts of impacts that alcoholism has had on you that you're still carrying around in all sorts of strange ways, and so you've got to be prepared to accept that you've got to go on a bit of a journey to try and. Uh, understand how alcohol has had an influence over you and then to try and change your behaviors, your thought patterns and your emotional responses so that you don't uh, pass on those kinds of vices and, and, and traits and problems uh, to, to the next generation, to the people over which you have an influence. Uh, I'm going to go straight to intimate relationships now because that's where a lot of the damage is done because mm. it's about trust and control and stuff. Uh, can you talk about how that's manifested for you? Have you seen any connections with that, mm-hmm. how you are in those relationships? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yep. I mean, without going into um, too much of the gory details, uh, <laughs> you, you put your finger on it. I mean, it's the, the question of control. Uh, when you grow up around alcoholism, you want control over things. You want control over people. Uh, you want control over people, places, and things. And so the hardest thing to accept when you've allowed someone to penetrate so deep into your emotional life as we do with our intimate relationships mm. is that you ultimately don't have the, the right or responsibility of governing this person's life. Um, I mean, of course, in a relationship, there's all sorts of give and take, and that's an important part of a relationship. Uh, it's an important part of a healthy relationship. But what happens when you're uh, tremendously influenced by the presence of alcoholism in your life is that uh, your tendency to want to influence the other person gets completely out of whack. And so the slightest sign of them going off the rails mm-hmm. gives you the sorts of warning bells that you might have had as a child when your parents were going off the rails. Uh, the, the, the slightest sign in, in my own intimate relationships that uh, my, my girlfriend uh, is not uh, living well or is not uh, living up to who I think that she could be, for me, is an indication that uh, everything's going to go to hell in a handbasket mm-hmm. as it did <laughs> when mm-hmm. I was a child. So... You tend to respond to that by going, look, I, I know best. Just let me control your life. Let me do everything. Uh, and, you know, if, understandably, that's not going to be good for a relationship. No one wants to be in a relationship with a tyrant. If so, I could just jump yeah. in. So yeah. you were pretty much saying if you could see things that weren't happening or unfolding in the way that you think that they should, you have the tendency or the desire to want to control that or it gives you some kind of grief. Is that what yeah. you were saying? Yeah. I mean, that's been my experience in the past. However... Uh, Al-Anon and our team before it uh, helped teach me how to escape those kinds of inherited emotional uh, and behavior patterns, right? So that's the the tendency. That's kind of the hand you've been dealt because you grew up around alcoholism. Okay, that's not your fault. But at the same time, uh, I have now the capacity to understand what's going on and to behave differently. And part of that, as we were speaking about just before, is coming to accept that you don't have control over people, places, and things. And when you can do that, uh, you can be in a much better position to have a healthy relationship. That uh, authenticity thing's important there too because another thing that you gain by uh, going to meetings and understanding that it's okay to be completely authentic, it means that in an intimate relationship, if you are getting um, irrational, well, all feelings are irrational or non-rational, but if you uh, if the, the panic stations are starting because the person uh, you know, looked in a certain direction or ate a certain whatever it is that's caused you to have the panic, um, that you can say that to the person rather mm-hmm. than don't do that, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. I'm starting to f- feel worried about this or something, and then it, and then it is expressed properly mm-hmm. and not in an unhealthy way. Yeah, 
Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And again, what that represents is the fact that you've taken a step back from the situation. You've taken a step back and you can actually detach and, and view what's going on uh, sufficiently to be able to then communicate as a, you know, sort of a, a rational actor rather than just an emotional force. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's, that's, again, that's important in a relationship. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you are an emotionally intelligent person and I feel like some of that may have come from Alateen and being able to discuss your feelings in this manner. Have you, have you found that it's helped you in your relationships, being able to discuss intimate issues? Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, part of that is just my character. I think part of that uh, influences my uh, work as a, a philosophy student and has influenced my uh, musicianship as well. I mean, authenticity, emotional authenticity, is, is an incredibly important part of any attempt to communicate with anyone. Right, so none of really what we're saying here is going to be restricted to the domain of intimate relationships. It's it, there's going to be cross pollination here with any kind of relationship that we're going to have because people want to see that you're honest. People want to see that you're able to communicate what's really going on for you, not in a burdensome way for other people, but in a manner that represents that you have a certain amount of control and understanding over what's going on for you internally, so that you can actually uh, influence other people in your actions in a, in a, a beneficial way. But going back to art as well, I feel like that's what makes any good art enjoyable. It's the authenticity. Yes. It's the fact that the artist is clearly trying to connect with people through their work. Definitely. I would agree. Yeah. Authenticity and craft. You know, it's got to be part, part inspiration, part, you know, emotional uh, discharge. But at the same time, it's, it's doing that in a, you know, a, controlled, a controlled and uh, sort of virtuous manner, if I could put it that way. So... It's a great idea, isn't it, to think that the the trauma through the st- twelve steps, the trauma of um, addiction, whether it's your own addiction or the impact of someone else's addiction on you, can lead you uh, to this wisdom that this hard won wisdom that um, you know, as you say, goes back to Marcus Aurelius and mm-hmm. the Stoics and Socrates and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, what a wonderful thing! Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What a wonderful um, way to bring up a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's really why I feel so lucky for having been given the opportunity to, to go to Alateen because mm. uh, in those formative years, you're looking for some kind of guide or some kind of compass to tell you which choice to make when you come to all those different crossroads as a, as a teenager, right? And what you have in Alateen is all kinds of uh, wisdom, as, as we've talked about, uh, being presented to you in a highly digestible form. But at the same time, it's the opportunity to make relationships with people who are also trying to govern their lives with that kind of, that kind of wisdom. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I mean, that, that for me, the, the kind of, that feeling I described before, the, the, the sense of lightness or the unburdening mm-hmm. uh, that, that I experienced the first time I went to Alateen, mm-hmm. that feeling itself in a way became my kind of north star as mm-hmm. a teenager because it was a feeling of joy or pleasure in a real good not a fake good not something that's self-destructive yep. ultimately but a, a true good that if you if you pursue ultimately will lead you to to the best kind of life you can have uh so yeah yeah mm. i'm very i'm very uh lucky to have mm-hmm. had our team and i think that that feelings or that state is is freedom I think it's yes. called freedom. Yes. Uh, and it, uh, it's freedom from desire and, mm-hmm. and all of that stuff. Um, and it's why we call the show Living Free. Right, right. Nice. Right so. on the nose. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, keeping we're nearly done now. So keeping in mind uh, that there may be someone listening who is a teenager or someone listening who uh, has got a teenager in their life that they think this might help with. Mm. Um, what's your message? What can you say? Yeah, yeah. Uh, go, go and look and see. Uh, because I don't, I don't ultimately think that the value of what we're talking about here can be encapsulated in some sort of set of ideas or some logical proof that I could write up on a whiteboard to convince someone to go and uh, try Alateen or Al-Anon. Ultimately, it's something you have to experience for yourself. And, and if you experience that unburdening, that sense of lightness or, or joy, then it's, it's going to work for you and it's going to be a good thing in your life. Mm-hmm. And it's not heavy philosophy at all. Many no. people just, they go and what they get from it is that sitting in that room where they're not being judged and where they can speak the truth. And that in itself goes a long way, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. Any final comments from Mitch? Uh, no, no, I think you've summed it up really well. And, um, yeah, I wish we could get you on every week, you know. This has been a really fruitful conversation. Yeah, thank you for having me. (laughs) Well, that is all we've got time for. So thanks again, Dan, for sharing your experience with us today. And thanks, Mitch, for your always perceptive questions. No worries. 
If you're concerned about drinking in a relative or friend and would like to find out, find out more about Al-Anon family groups or Alateen, which is part of Al-Anon, then you can phone them on 1300 252 666 or go online at alanon.org.au. Coming up next, we have Balam Wah, the spirit of Wah, hosted by Uncle Tao Jim Choco Edwards. Join Uncle Choco on a journey of belonging and movement through sing-alongs and yarns. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. And a song I think we can have to take us out um, is uh, Poor Boy by Split Ends. So we're going back to the past again with the old Split Ends, back to the 80s. Here they are. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.